Hey, thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us and tell one of your colleagues about the interview you're about to hear or have heard in the past. We hope you enjoy our conversations and that you'll listen to others in our library. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please reach out. We'll do our best to incorporate them. Thanks again. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Vladimir Bosanets. I'm the co-founder and publisher of The Registry. Today's podcast is going to be a little different. On February 16, 2023, we hosted a commercial real estate panel in San Francisco that provided a comprehensive overview of the market in Northern California. But especially in San Francisco, usually a city described as the one most affected by the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. The event featured a broker outlook led by Christina Clark, a managing principal at Cressa, and Bill Cumberlich, an executive vice president of CBRE. This panel was moderated by Manny Fishman, a partner at Buckhalter, a law firm that specializes in commercial real estate transactions. Following that conversation, I moderated a developer and landlord discussion with Ani Vartarian Boladian, the managing partner at Rubicon Point Partners. David Eaton, Senior Vice President of Leasing at Paramount Group, Matt Field, the President of TMG Partners, and Jeff Smith, the President of SAC Properties. This conversation is about as insightful as you'll hear anyone talk about the state of the commercial real estate market in San Francisco. And I hope you'll enjoy it and come visit us next time we host an event. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I am Manny Fishman. Uh, the head of the real estate group for Buckhalter. I don't have a fancy video. Um, our law firm has been around for about 90 years. Uh, real estate is our second largest group of the firm, over 65 lawyers. We have 11 offices in six states, mostly on the West Coast. And I've been practicing law in San Francisco for my entire career, which is just a little less than Bill Cumblish's, but, <laughs> but I've known. And it's great to see you all. It really is. Um, it's wonderful to be back in person and to network in person. So without further ado, let me um, introduce uh, the first panel and set the stage for what we're talking about. Um, Christina Clark is the managing principal at Cressa, where she's been there since 2014. She's represented many tech companies in many of the signature leases in the Bay Area. And she's a leader in the area of strategic portfolio planning and the future of work. Christina has been named by Globe Street as a woman of influence in 2020. And the San Francisco Business Times awarded her 2021 tech deal as the game changer lease of the year. It was a Twitter lease. And that really has been a game changer for many of us. But nevertheless, uh, Christina also serves on the board of directors of the Bay Area Children's Theater. Bill Kumbelich is an executive vice president of CBRE, but many of us know him as a founding member of CAC, which was one of the largest independent brokers started in the 1990s until CBRE brought, bought out the company in 2013. Bill has represented many of the premier institutional owners in leases 
and in the capital market transactions in the Bay Area for almost 40 years. His experience goes all the way back to the Delta Dental Building, the first office building that was built uh, south of Market in 1988 uh, with a client that we both know, Michael Barker of Barker Pacific. So that building is now known as 101st Plaza. It's now owned by Kilroy. So um, the combined leasing activities of this illustrious panel is well in excess of 100 million square feet. So it's wonderful to have you both here. Let me set the stage. Um, 2023, 2023 is clearly a year of headwinds. Not to steal anyone's thunder, but uh, San Francisco's vacancy rate is at a generational high. The sublease market is creating significant pressure on the direct lease market. There's uncertainty in demand, and that's probably a politically correct term. There's uncertainty in demand by the largest users of office space in the Bay Area. It's exacerbated by the work from home or the hybrid work model. Capital is tight, interest rates are high, loans are coming due, and some buildings are in distress. With all that, there is some room for optimism, and I hope we'll hear that from both of our panelists and from the next uh, panel as well. But I hope what we can shed light on is what the leasing market looks like today, what landlords need to do to attract tenants and what tenants are looking for, and the bottom line, as I say, are you optimistic about the next five to seven years in the Bay Area? And if so, why? So Bill, let's set the stage. Can you give us some of the basic numbers? Um, what's the numbers on vacancy that CBRE is seeing, uh, net absorption rates, uh, rents, and the sublease, sublease market? Great. Thanks, Manny. And hello, everybody. Uh, we're all in this together, and this is something we got to remember. We've been here before, and uh, now we're all ready to do it again. So Manny asked me to give sort of a, you know, kind of an overview of some of the facts and the figures. So um, here we go. Uh, the San Francisco market is about 87 million square feet. That makes it the 16th largest uh, office market in the United States. Uh, of that 87, about 52 million is in the financial district or central business district. Um, vacancy and availability, the vacancy rate uh, citywide is about 28%. Uh, central business district, about 25. Of that 25, 17 million is, I'm sorry, 17% is direct, about 8% is sublease. That's about 9 million feet of direct availability or direct, direct vacancy and about uh, 4 million square feet of uh, sublease space. It's the highest you know, vacancy rate in over 50 years, but the unemployment rate in San Francisco is astonishingly low, about 2.4%. Nationally, it's about 3.5%. So that's a very interesting thing to think about, high vacancy, low unemployment that's got probably a little bit of a silver lining there somewhere. Um, in terms of absorption or net absorption, uh, since COVID hit, about 18 million square feet of negative net absorption, that's about double what it was during the dot-com uh, crash, mm -hmm. put it in perspective. 
rents are down uh, about, but only about 15% versus minus 70 during dot-com and negative 35 during the uh, Great Recession. Um, the direct rents are about 20 to 30% higher than the sublease rents. In some case, there's a bigger spread. But concessions are way up, and that's primarily free rent and higher tenant improvement allowances. So from the landlord's perspective, uh, there's probably more, a little bit more uh, pressure there than the, uh, where the asking rents would suggest. And then just a couple other things. Uh, last year, of all the space that was leased in downtown San Francisco, about 75% was either uh, a lease renewal or a sublease. So from a tenant's perspective, these are very low cash transactions, low out-of-pocket uh, transactions. And that's becoming, you know, uh, really uh, very common, you know, among the tenants, and that's what a lot of tenants are looking for. And only 25% of the transactions last year uh, were direct, new direct leases with the landlord. And then just generally, the uh, tenant requirements, uh, tenant uh, requirements seem to be shrinking, uh, which Christina will, I'm sure, explain a little bit more. And uh, the lease terms are, there's a lot of shorter term requirements, more than there have been in the past because of the uncertainty. There's also a, a significant flight to quality, but I would say this is in two ways. We always have a flight to quality in recessions. The better locations, the better buildings uh, outperform. But now it's kind of a, another layer, which is the tenants are asking, how do we get our employees to come back to the office? And what and what kind of a building could we find that would help uh, accomplish that? Um, and then one other interesting note, and this ties a little bit to the flight to quality point, um, we counted six buildings last year in downtown San Francisco that achieved the highest rents in their history, which is kind of counterintuitive, but this, this flight quality, these, these, this top layer of buildings are super outperforming. It's probably not more than five or 8% of the market, but that's an interesting phenomenon in the market and also another uh, sign of, of, uh, of hope. Thank you, Bill. Uh, some great facts there. Um, and I think one of the takeaways is this uncertainty in the market that's showing up both in the amount of space that's being leased, some retrenchment of tenant demands, the inability to commit to long-term leases, and that's just a perfect um, lead-in to Christina. I, one of my jobs is to make sure that these guys don't argue. <laughs> They're great friends, but Bill said we rents, we rents were down just 15%. Yeah, that's way too low. I, I, I kind of think Christina's going to pick up on that, but again, my job is to make sure they don't argue too much, so I just throw it out. But talk about uncertainty in the market and what that means for you. Yeah, well... Um I would say we're, we're definitely starting to see to be a little bit more positive. We are seeing some more activity in Q1. Um, my tenants are looking at, you know, do we want to come back? How much space do we need? Should we make more of a commitment? Um, which is exciting, but are they, are they doing something or are we just looky-loos right now? Um, I would also agree the return to office is, is up very much. It's, um, you know, it's up 30% Tuesday through Thursdays since Labor Day. Um, which is great, so we are starting to use space again. And then um, my third point would be, it's an amazing time to be a tenant in the market and do um, great transactions and excited about that. But we definitely have a landlord disconnect with the tenant and where's the market going and how much concessions can they get. 
Um, absolutely agree on the flight to quality. It's also about, you know, in addition to how great is the view, um, it's also about what are the amenities, can I park? For CFOs, it's how much flexibility do I have in case we're not using the space. Um, a lot of that, that uh, sublease availability on the market is the overcommitment of space and how do, we, how do we change how we do transactions to have more flexibility going forward. What about that overcommitment to space and the retrenchment? Yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. We used to, you know, you know, if you're going to take 100,000, yeah, why not take 125 or more? I don't think that's going to be happening as much. Um, office is important. It's, it is coming back. It will always be important. We're learning and hearing. Um, if you heard Mark Benioff's um, uh, earnings, you know, he talked about productivity, productivity. Zuckerberg talked about um, efficiency and how people work together. So we know that we need to be together, but we're probably not going to need to be together all the time. It's not from 8 or 9 a.m. on Monday to 5 or 6 on Friday, but Tuesday through Thursday it is. And, um, you know, does that space look different because we don't need so much of it all the time? Um, Bill, is there now a new structural vacancy built into the market? Is some space just going to stay vacant and are we now looking at a structural vacancy factor of 25%? Well, I think it's too early to tell, honestly. Um, the, if, if somebody asked me what are the biggest challenges facing downtown San Francisco right now in terms of leasing space, I would say it's three things. Number one is, is work from home or remote work. That's the big one. Uh, number two, I would say, is to call it the tech slowdown. And it hits us particularly hard be, be, for obvious reasons and a few other cities. And the third thing would be, I would just say generally, just sort of indigenous San Francisco type, type, type issues. But, but, the, uh, but the first point, the work from home, and, and also to some extent the tech, um, those, those, the, 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 the jury's out right now as to where that's going to uh, stabilize. You know, I would say that uh, you know, uh, the requirements do seem to be getting more compact. I think that uh, for, you know, Companies are, are, are using space a little bit differently. They're, they're, I don't know what the term would be, but uh, I know my daughter works for a tech company, and she says, well, we've got 100 seats to service 400 people. So uh, that The ratio is, is instead of one to one, it's you could have one desk for two or three people or one chair. They, it used to be that we had a seat, a desk, and a seat in a conference room or a common area for an employee, for one person. And now we're looking at can we have a desk, one desk for four people with the amount of in and out and hybrid work that people are doing. So that changes the overall footprint of what we need. And I think we're starting to see in the, the numbers and some of the ones you gave us, Bill, uh, when we renew, are we renewing four floors or two or one? Um, how much are we compacting down? So um, there's about 7 million square feet coming up um, for expiration this year, and there's probably going to be 3 or 4 million actually renewed. Hmm. Yeah, the market, the market has, uh, we haven't hit bottom yet. I mean, we haven't found the bottom. Uh, you know, vacancies 25, you know, we could see it go into 30. Um, but we also, at the same time, uh, I know one, one of our uh, large clients, large occupier downtown, uh, they told all their employees last Friday that they're going to be expected to be in the office four days a week, period. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. There are others that are talking about that. Right, and I still think we're missing all the vacancy that there really is. If you look at buildings or you have tenants or some of your clients too, Bill, 
Um, are they actually only subleasing 150 or 200,000 square feet of their 800,000 square foot footprint? Could they put 400 on the market, you know, or even at a smaller tenant, if they're going to be renewing and downsizing, could they give up a few of those floors now? They just aren't because, um, the, you know, the lease is too short or there's no tail. So, yeah, I think we got to keep in mind that this was a black swan event. Nobody expected it. We've never experienced this before. Companies don't have never worked through this type of a, call it a tech disruption of how they work. So it's going to take time for these companies to figure it out internally, right? Aren't, aren't they all? Absolutely. I, f I feel like every one of my clients has a different plan and is trying to solve differently. Of um, one, one company I heard recently, they come back to the office once a month for a week. They have a collaboration week and they are focused together and the entire office is required to be back of a few hundred people. And then you can do whatever you want on the off weeks. Other companies, like you said, are saying, you know, Monday through Thursday or Tuesday and Thursday and on Wednesdays, pick where you want to be. You know, the important thing to remember and why going back to the office hasn't worked is to go back into an office and not be with your colleagues that you're actually working with and all be sitting on Zoom calls is so lonely. I'd rather be in my house alone, you know, wearing my slippers than in an office alone or with people I don't know. So I have a girlfriend that recently started at a very large um, consulting firm. And she's been there about a month now. She still knows nobody, but she goes in three days a week because that's what her contract says. But her team is in Los Angeles. That's, that's a hard place to be. So in addition to solving when we go in, it's who we go in with and why we go in, which is why collaboration and collaboration space is so important. I, would, I agree 100% that the, the function of an office um, has changed. And um, the design of the office has changed. Um, I was on a panel with a friend that we know, Melissa Pesci, who's really speaks about that issue 100%. And uh, just forcing people to come back. We have a hard time as a law firm and other professional firms just getting people to meet that three days in the week. Um, um, the Ferrella Law Firm, which moved from the Rust Building uh, over 100,000 square feet on 11, on 10 floors to two floors and 65,000 square feet with no offices is maybe an extreme example of this, but it does show uh, something that's changing. One other thing, we keep talking about a market. There are some bright spots. I, I mean, um, the Presidio is a bright spot, uh, off a different type of office center, but it's, it's an example of where I see some tenants going. Class B buildings um, or, or Class A minus buildings are an example of that you might see uh, startups moving up to, which might moving into, which is an optimistic sign in the market. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, Christina alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I mean, just kind of think of it this way. You know, in 2019, it was a terrible environment for tenants. You know, there was no space, uh, the rents were ridiculously high. You know, there were no concessions, everything was bad. Today, there, it's any space you want. Uh, you know, the rents have uh, softened quite a bit. Um, it's a great time to be out looking for space and going long, you know. Absolutely, I mean, we had a tour the other day. Uh, it, there was 12 spaces that matched exactly what they needed after whittling it down and with views and, and all the bells and whistles. So 
tenants have choices, which means we get to negotiate and uh, push back a little. And also, I think, you know, work with the landlords. How can we structure transactions to work together to get people into space? How can we look at them a little differently? What can be built out by the landlord and financed into the transaction? The cost of capital is very much on CFO's minds. So I think how we work together, as you said when, when we started, is going to be really important. The creative the people that can come together creatively is where we're going to get transactions completed. And, and we get a lot of input from, you know, people like Christina. And, and, and from the landlord's perspective, I think that, you know, for, for the buildings to, you know, become comp to be competitive, it's uh, more amenities. Tenants want more amenities. Uh, they want, they got to get the TIs right. Uh, they want a better tenant experience in the building. And that can manifest in many different ways. And a lot of the buildings are doing those things and they're also rebranding themselves, again, to you know, offer a solution that helps companies attract their people back into the building. Yeah, I mean, my Instagram is filled with some of your buildings. <laughs> I get like all these ads for plug and play space and following different We're following things. you. <laughs> um, but, but I feel like for, for the startups and the younger companies, absolutely, what, why wouldn't I go into a space where I can jump in and it's 80% ready for me versus having to do the build, which you know they've never done. They've never bared that burden of the cost, but also all the decisions that you have to make and who do you hire and just the time it takes to get space built. Uh, I think the more it can be warm or ready or built is, is really uh, what people are looking for right now. Um, you know, I, I thought you made an interesting point. We were talking the other day about how, you know, the space decisions now has, has risen to the C-suite level in many cases, which it wasn't before. Yes, absolutely. The, uh, the importance of the, like, space planner and the designer and how much is this going to cost since the pandemic, I mean, it's just escalated all the way to the top. It used to be an afterthought and, oh, that this team over there is spending money. But now, very often when we're presenting, we are we are with the CFO. Um, you know, this afternoon we were texting with the CFO about a potential sublease. Um, they are in it. They are looking at how are the liabilities going to hit their books? How is the capital going to hit their books? How can we stretch it out? Um, when does rent actually hit? We have some clients that, you know, they don't want the double bubble where we leased space and we're, re we're building it um, and we're moving out of old space. So we can't, we can't have them both hit the books at the same time. So can the landlord do the build for us? And then we take possession of the space after the build is complete and we don't ever have both leases on our books at once. So that part of the conversation and working with FP&A is, is happening in every single transaction I'm doing right now. You really see it also in VC-backed companies that are now just saying we're just not paying for that type of capital because there's so much available. Yeah, absolutely. A million years ago, one of my first clients was Zappos. And Tony Shea said, we're never buying a chair. We're never buying a new chair. Everything has to be used. There are enough chairs in the world. And when you walked into their headquarters in Las Vegas, there was all these different chairs. But it was so true. How many chairs are there, and how much is a chair? So, um, you know, no, no offense to the to the chair designer, but is there a way that we can, you know, be environmental and save some costs that is, can go into the the business of doing the business? You know, real estate is one of the highest line items on someone's books, but how can the business be first and not real estate? And that's what's especially different since 2019. In 19, we just grabbed space and had to hold it to do business. Today, how is it actually enhancing it or can we not spend it, spend the money on it and spend it on our business? Bill, is there, if you'd have to identify an impediment to the market, um, is it really, um, 
lenders unwilling to consent to leases, the, the amount of debt service, is the impediment the capital, or is the impediment just the, as you and Christina are saying, I think rent should be down 15%. Christina's clients are waiting for it to go down to 30%, 30% dip. Would you identify an impediment to the market? Same thing with Christina. Well, I, I can't say that there's any one thing. I think we're still in a major, major correction period. You know, uh, I would say about up to about a year ago, up until maybe the second quarter of last year, I think most people, myself included, thought that, you know, with COVID being pretty much over, everybody vaccinated, numbers going down, that we would have something like a return to pre-COVID. And as summer came into play, that rebound just did not happen. And it, and it still has not happened. And that's because of a lot of things we've been talking about. I mean, it's a process uh, with all the tenants and all the large uh, occupiers that are trying to noodle through and work through all this and figure out where is it all going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many of us, it was, you know, after Labor Day, after Thanksgiving, after New Year's, after Labor Day again, after, the, I mean, three years in a row, we've been, we've been saying the same things. But I think analysis paralysis on both sides, you know, the, the lenders and the landlords hemming and hawing and where can we get the transaction done? And by the time that's done, the tenant saying, well, actually, do I need that much space or do I want that much space? Or a board member, you know, helicoptering in and saying, can we look at this differently? Um, I'm working on a transaction recently where it was approved. We were in, uh, we were at letter of intent and the, the CEO said, maybe we just do a sublease. Can we just, can we just maybe not make such a big commitment for seven years? So, you know, part of it is the analysis paralysis and, you know, time kills deals. There's, there's still some rhythm to our business that while different, it holds true. Yeah, I think there's it's it's complicated and there's a lot of confusion among the tenants. You know, the more you look, the more confusing it gets, and it's hard to pull the trigger. Yep. Um, I do want to make sure that there's time. Anyone, you got a great panel here, so um, Vlad may, wanted me to make sure to leave time for questions or offer questions. We're happy to just stand up and let me know that you want to ask a question. Um, we've got a couple more topics we can talk about, but. Yes, sir. I have a question for Bill. You mentioned that you have a client that suddenly decided that they wanted everyone to come back another day a week. How do they make that decision? What, what's, what, what's pushing them to do that? Can everyone hear him, or do you want me to? He's got a loud enough voice, but it's basically a back-to-work question. What makes that decision? You know, I don't know exactly what their decision-making process was, but my interpretation was that the CEO, you know, uh, drove the decision. Productivity. And he, and he said, and he was thinking that we're going to be a lot more successful as a company if people are in the office four days a week. No, it's productivity. I mean, you know, they're they're there to make money as an operating business, but. I think most companies, and I think a lot of the tech companies, correct me if I'm wrong, Christina, they're not quite doing that. I think they're, as one person told me, in tech, it's not a mandate culture, it's a nudge culture. And no one's no one's like throwing you out yet if you don't show up three days. They're not yeah. they're, they are correct. tracking badges, it's really easy to do now, but they're not necessarily saying you didn't come, you know, for four weeks in a row you were not here three days a week and therefore you are punished or terminated. They're, we're not really seeing consequences yet, so employees don't seem to be taking it too seriously. 
Yeah, and with all due respect, I mean, with that low unemployment rate, it still makes it a little tough, I mean, for the CEO. That's what we're finding. I, no matter what I tell my junior attorneys, they're in demand right now. I, I can't just enforce it. There's someone that they'll go to another firm. And we did encourage people for two years to stay at home. They're giving up an hour commute, and they view it as their life. It, it's still, and as much as we talk about leadership, it's... We're not, just not there yet. I, I'm wondering if we ever will be. But um, uh, even as though I think all of us agree that for me to convey what I know, for all of us to convey what we know to the next generation requires them to be there. Uh, it's, just, it's just not sticking yet. Right. I, I think it would also be remiss if we didn't make a little comment about the city of San Francisco. Thank you. I, I, that was one of my next questions. Let me set it up for you even better, okay, before you do it. Um, the mayor announced just last week a revitalization plan for downtown San Francisco, and this is just amazing. $250 billion annual gross domestic product of the city of San Francisco. It accounts for more than a quarter of the nine Bay Area County, uh, nine Bay Area County economy. 79% of that is produced in what we would call south of market, north of market, traditional downtown area. So se almost 80% of the, of the revenue of the city is generated in this area. And what if you had the mayor here, what would we both ask her we, we need? Do you want to go first? <laughs> I mean, I'm happy, I'm happy to, but I'm trying to be a gentleman. <sighs> I mean, pro-business, this is, I mean, we need, to, we need to get back to pro-business. Can I just read a quote real quick that came out in a news article today? The Bay Area Council of Economic Institute did a uh, study on taxes. Um, they studied companies' uh, business tax burden in uh, different industries and different sizes. I'm just going to read the tech one since it's my focus. A tech company with 250 employees and $750 million in taxable gross receipts would face a total business tax in San Francisco of 10.4 million annually. Mm -hmm. The same company would pay 4 million in Oakland, 17,000 in San Jose, and 3,600 in Sunnyvale. I think that says it all. I mean, we gotta we gotta work on this, um, and clean clean up the city, and you know get you know Bart up, and all these different you know public transportation back and. Etc. But the taxes are is a problem, and all of us are facing a regulatory environment that is we all agree with uh, for uh, environmental sustainability. But the cost of converting the energy from fossil fuels to electric is a real burden on 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 buildings. It, we're just not there yet. And if I had one thing to ask, it would be. Don't make those mandates arbitrary 2030, 2035. Let it roll with cycles of buildings. We all go through capital cycles. But the, the, the taxing issue, to me, um, is, is huge. Um, any other uh, questions? Well, and so is the sustainability, because the businesses are going to have to be able to report out, too. So we, Correct. we somehow need to partner landlords and businesses together. H how are we going to be able to report that? And then how are all the vendors going to report it and the janitors and everybody else that ties into this? So there's a whole little business there that someone's going to need to be helping. Yes. It would be great if our interests were aligned, too. This base year concept, gross lease, may, not, has to, may go by the wayside. We've got to make it net. 
so that your electricity is your electricity, you have the same incentive to save as I have the incentive to, mm -hmm. uh, to make capital improvements that help you save. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit of a disconnect. Yep. Um, one other thing that I read, if you're the quote that I really like, so it says, while the tech companies have embraced hybrid work, there's no other region than ours that has the amount of prominent tech companies and human talent headquartered than in the Bay Area. I think that is the optimistic thing for the next five to seven years. And I, I am sure there are f people waiting for the bottom to hit, so to speak, uh, to buy some buildings and invest in that long term. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, it's uh, people forget, too, the infrastructure that we've got here is uh, unparalleled, I would say you know, between the public transportation and the education and all that. I mean, San Francisco has been through this many times before. Always comes back, never bet against San Francisco. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It is still the hub of innovation. I was at a AI conference on Tuesday. People flew in from all around the world to hear what was happening, you know, with this company in San Francisco to collaborate. They're starting businesses here. So we do have this moment where we need to embrace them, welcome, welcome new businesses um, and continue to be that hub that we are. I, I will say that I think the city, the city leaders, uh, um, they, they just need to get in touch with reality. Because I, I, I don't, if they could do that, I think that we would be off and running. Um, and I will give them credit. I think they did a, done a nice job of cleaning up the CBD. I mean, compared to two years ago, it's cleaner and uh, it feels a lot safer. And there is a limit to what the city can do. But they have got to get a competitive and they've got to get aggressive and like bring back Ed Lee. I mean, <laughs> Hard to do. Um, <laughs> uh, where's Vlad? I want to make sure I'm doing okay on time. Are you, are you ready? Okay. Um, final question. Anybody? Yes. I'm curious, the ground floor vacancies in the financial Yes. Just to be clear, that's Mr. Ritchie asking the question, who has a very vested interest in ground. But thank you, Mr. Ritchie. Yes, what ground floor retail? Well, I think it it's, it correlates with the vacancy rate, and if you don't have the foot traffic, it's hard for the retailers to make it. So as the vacancy rate, you know, begins to come down, and and even now, I think you know, you try to go out to lunch downtown, and there aren't quite as many restaurants open as you'd like, and so they're doing well. And that success of the ones that are open is going to attract others. Yeah. Tadish was full today. It was great. Lots of energy. I mean, for all these numbers, it doesn't feel sort of as empty as the numbers would tell you it is. I mean, I, it's, I stood in front of our office on Tuesday, and I ran into three different people I knew. And it was you know, energy and people walking around. So it, it doesn't necessarily feel as, as empty as it maybe is. And I agree that as tenants come back, we need to be filling those spaces with what are they going to use, and how is it going to be an amenity for them as well? Well, thank you both. Um, this has been a great panel. Um, I want to say a word about Vlad and uh, the registry to introduce the second panel. It's really an honor to be able to partner with the registry and Vlad Basanic on this. They're entering the 16th year 
uh, and when they were just, um, I remember when they just entered the Bay Area market to do their publication, they've now grown to have commercial, rate, commercial real estate stories in Southern California where they cover Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, and the Inland Empire, as well as the Pacific Northwest. We all read the registry because it gives us the best information on the market. So I congratulate Vlad for that. It's an honor to partner with you and take it over. Right. Thank you, Manny. Um, I really appreciate that. I um, don't like that kind of attention, but um, even though my name's on all the emails, as you guys all get, um, I'd like to invite the panel up here and uh, let's let's get this this um, you know started. So, gentlemen, Ani. If we could switch the yeah. Thank you so much. All right, um, so I, um, uh, Manny, thank you very much. That, that was uh, very insightful. Uh, Bill and Christina also, um, really appreciate that. Um, I, um, so I'm, I'm gonna cheat a little bit. I'm gonna ask my panel to introduce themselves, if that's okay, just so we can kind of jump into, jump into the sort of crux of things. Um, Ani. Hello. Hi, folks. So I co-run a firm called Rubicon Point Partners. We invest in the Bay Area and Pacific Northwest. We manage um, institutional capital, a mix of pension funds, endowments, foundations. Um, and we have a combination of both separate account and a commingled fund. Awesome. Matt? Hi, I'm Matt Field, president of TMG Partners. We're an investor developer in the Bay Area been in business since the mid-1980s. We invest on behalf of institutional clients and partner with them to provide value-add and opportunistic solutions to problems. So we're uh, looking forward to the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff? Yeah. Uh, Jeff Smith. I'm the managing partner of SAC Capital Partners. Uh, we're a Bay Area uh, firm that's been around since the late 1950s. We invest in Denver West in multifamily. And... Uh, both institutional and uh, high net worth clients. Hi, I'm David Eaton. I'm Senior Vice President of Leasing for the Paramount Group. We're a publicly traded REIT. We've got 14 million square feet in the country with four and a half million square feet roughly here in San Francisco. So we're the second largest landlord in San Francisco, all class A high rise. We've got one condominium project, one Stewart Lane, but everything else is class A office high rise. Awesome. Thank you so much. So um, I'd like to start off with kind of getting your feedback on what you just heard. Um, just want to get your sort of reaction and kind of what would you think? I mean, actually, I, I did have a question, which was whether or not, Matt, you might have an opinion or if the prior panelists are here, but about the Twitter effect, you know, whether or not Twitter not paying rent, is that going to influence to other other tenants, which is kind of important. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure if they're here, but I would love to get your opinion. Outside of that, I don't disagree with a lot of what was said. I mean, that's what we're seeing in the market right now. Tenants are shrinking. 
generally speaking, I think those landlords that work with their tenants and are flexible and can be creative are the ones who are landing the tenants and, and able to you know, lease up their buildings. Yeah, I think uh, clearly the market is in a phase of contraction in terms of demand. We've sort of flatlined for the last, I think probably at least nine months, We've it's been hard to see demand. I think we're starting to see people poking their heads up again and thinking about real estate decisions. Problem is we were all work from home or hybrid and now we're trying to make decisions about how much we go back. But I do see increasing interest. The hole we're in is huge. Uh, I don't think uh, that they were understating it. I think I, I think we'll eclipse 30% vacancy um, just based on the current trends as, as things roll. And as Christina was saying, if, if you give back half the space that's coming due next year, uh, you know, it's not all bad. There's never, you know, there's there's moments where it's easy to say, you know, it's never it's never as good as it looks. It's never as bad as it looks. It looks pretty bad right now. So, um, uh, but that doesn't mean everything's bad. You know, if, if CDO rates have never been higher. Um, rates have never been higher in trophy class A. So it's not like the entire market. But I do think challenging space. It's gonna be hard to get your employees to come back into space and. You know, I don't care how bad, how much you fit it out. If you're looking at a wall 30 feet away out of another building and it's dark, that space is going to be super challenged. And it, usually, in in rationally functioning markets, there is a differentiation between good and bad. I think we're seeing that play out in spades at the moment. And um, but I do think demand's going to come back some. It's not going to look like it did before for a little while. Um, if if not for a long while, but I think we'll see demand and we'll get a f more functioning market. Jeff? Yeah, well, we didn't really cover multifamily in that, but uh, I would say that, you know, operationally, multifamily has been very healthy. We, you know, when we look across our portfolio, NOI growth last year was 21%. So great year. Unfortunately, during the same time, we've had volatility in interest rates and increasing cap rates, which basically ate up all that appreciation on our properties. And so when we look across our portfolio, it's great that we had 20% NOI growth, but appreciation was probably 1% or 2%. You should be in office where you didn't get any of that. Yeah. <laughs> David. Well, we, we, uh, we definitely are experiencing a bifurcated market here in San Francisco. I know we talked about it a little bit on the previous panel. I think that was the main takeaway for me because we've got different office products, uh, product types within our portfolio, one of which is One Market Plaza, which is one of the few trophy buildings in San Francisco. And there, when we look at where we were pre-pandemic and where we are now, um, our NERs, our net effective rents, looking at all the concessions we're giving, which are definitely on the free rent side, much greater than they were pre-pandemic. Uh, TIs are similar, um, but our rents are much higher and the net effective rents now are about 13% higher than where we were pre-pandemic. So that is definitely a positive um, product of what's happened. Um, on the flip side, on the more creative buildings, the buildings that I should say cater to more creative use, uh, we have seen a very huge lull in tour activity, and we can talk more about that as we go on. But and then somewhere in between the class kind of class A commodity type assets that we have, we're st we've still had good deal churn, but I'd say it's probably operating at about 50% of what was happening pre-pandemic. So we're we're making deals, and um, but just not quite at the same velocity. And the only other thing I would say is that the in the net effective rent study, in that case, we're probably about 10% below where we were. So it's not a drastic adjustment downwards, but it's definitely 
it's definitely relevant. Yeah, and and David, you have a perspective with your company that's you know kind of bi coastal, if you will, right? Um, obviously, you're in charge of leasing here, but I am curious. I know we've heard of sort of comparisons to New York and that kind of thing, but uh, you know maybe this is a little bit trite. But just from your perspective, from your company's, you know, how is this market looking compared to what's happening, you know, there? Um, good question. So in New York, we have similar product type in New York. Um, you know, we're 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 larger there. We're we're about 10 million square feet there, but it's a much larger market. Um, we definitely saw a quicker recovery, which is interesting because New York clearly got, I would say, I think it's evident that they got hit much harder with COVID, which is sort of the genesis of this whole problem. Um, but you have this this quicker back to the office. It, it wasn't quick, but it was quicker than here. If you look at the trend lines in our portfolio from New York compared to San Francisco in terms of recovery, they're almost identical in terms of just the growth of utilization, what, where we were say a year ago to where we are now, it's the, the utilization's increasing at the same rate in both markets. We're just, we were about half of the utilization in San Francisco as to where we were in New York, and now we're maybe about 10 or 15% different. So the, the gap is closing, that's the good news. Um, and we can talk more about that later, but, but I, think, I think that the New York, uh, the differentiator is you've got a different industry uh, dynamic there. You know, you've, you're definitely more financial services uh, heavy, more traditional office heavy than you are tech. I think this is more of a cultural thing. This work work from home embracement has really been much more prevalent in the tech industry. I think everyone in this room understands that. So I think that's the main factor. Um, and then I do think I'm just giving some credit to, you know, the spirit of uh, you know New Yorkers. Um, people are just more. The work ethic is just more rabid there than it is here. And they, they I work harder. That, but I think that that is that's a real factor. Interesting. Okay, um, Ani and Matt. I'll, Generalization. I'll, yeah, I'll <laughs> I'll stay with with this topic a little bit with with you guys because you guys also have sort of a broader Bay Area perspective, and and I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know, Ani, you came to our event last night in Silicon Valley where we kind of you know explored similar topics. How different are you seeing sort of the micro markets, if you will, within the region? Right? Is there any differentiation anywhere, um, or is it pretty much the same? I mean, you weren't there yet last night, but I actually thought yesterday's conversation was kind of optimistic, um, which was pretty surprising because um, on the flip side, there are lots of large blocks of space vacant in Silicon Valley. Um, I was on a call with a broker who basically said he ran 18 BOVs in the last week for buildings just in Silicon Valley and nothing in San Francisco. I do think San Francisco landlords are better capitalized than they are in maybe other parts of the market. Um, um, but, uh, you know, going back to one of your questions about generally, I think we all have legacy assets, but we also have fresh capital. And I think there's going to be just a complete resetting of values across the board. But it's also going to be an incredible, in, incredible, you know, investing um, landscape going forward. And so it's working through the assets. Um, I joke, and I've heard this actually from TMG at one point about survive till 95 and Sam Zell. But we joke internally, it's like survive till 25 for our sector. And we'll get out of this in, in due time. People will come back in. Um, but, you know, the, uh, right now it's uncomfortable, but there will be opportunities that will present themselves. Yeah. Matt, what's your perspective? I mean, I think we, we were just, you know, it was too hard to say something that rhymed with 97. Um, but, 
But, uh, you know, I think that the Valley's interesting because you have more R&D people go into, the, go in to make things um, differently than coming into the office in, in San Francisco. Um, I mean, office occupancy in the Valley is low. Um, and you can, you can drive, you can look at parking lots when you drive around and sort of how you do this these days. And you will pass certain companies where the parking lots are very, very full and other places where they are anemic. Um, and I do think it's, it is somewhat cultural, but the Valley, the Valley is just more diverse than San Francisco in terms of the product types. And I would tell you R and D feels healthier in the Valley than office at the moment. Um, and I think that's, you know, we're sort of, everything slipped on its head in my mind. Like right now it's sort of the nineties. There was no tech in San Francisco. The fire sector was hot. The buildings, everybody said, oh, you have to have a brand new building. It needs a state of the art air BS. So 555 Cal, Embarcadero Center for one market plaza. These are old buildings that are leasing at the best rents ever because they're well located with great views and they're close to the people's homes who come to occupy them. And in this valley, R&D space is, you know, outpacing office. Well, you know, things are just a little flipped on their head. Doesn't mean that that will persist forever, but it sort of feels like the 90s. So maybe we'll, you know, find something to do with that in 25. Yeah. Um, Jeff, um, so the multifamily market has been relatively well, doing well over the last few years, um, but you guys haven't been very active here in the Bay Area. Tell us a little bit about that and sort of why, why that was and you know yeah. where have you been active? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so I would say you know pre-COVID up until 21, 2021, we hadn't done a deal in the Bay Area in about six years. And we were, when we look across our markets, we're Denver West, we were just finding more relative value in other markets. Uh, more attractive opportunities. We felt the pricing here got a little ahead of itself. And, uh, you know, when COVID hit, uh, the Bay Area was hit harder than other other markets. You know, in Denver, we barely saw it as a blip, you know. Um, and so we really saw a resetting of rents and demand in the area where we felt NYs were depressed and it was an attractive time for us to get back into the market. Um, we also had some thematic investing coming out of COVID. You know, we were looking for larger floor plans because people were going to work from home more. And so we bought three townhome projects within the Bay Area, one in Sunnyvale, one in Fremont, one in, uh, in the East Bay, um, that were, all have performed quite well. You know, people have liked that additional space. It's almost been a proxy in our portfolio to single-family rental because it feels more like that. It has direct access garages. People have small backyards. And that's been a very attractive product and it's performed well in the Bay Area for us. Uh, we also, this year, bought another deal in, in, in Marin, in San Rafael. Uh, typically, we have not been competitive in Marin. We've been traditionally outbid by a lot of different people. So it felt like a good time for us to make more of a basis play and get into Marin where you rarely see uh, products transact. And so we were able to get a 2002 building podium style for, you know, probably 30% less than it would cost to build today. And that felt good to us. And what makes a deal happen today? What, what is, what is like, you know, an anatomy of a deal, if you will, right? Yeah, you bet. So our most recent transaction, we closed a deal in Denver, um, in the end of December. And we look at it as where we think the market is today. And that was going in at a 5-1 cap. Uh, when we capture the loss to lease, it's a 5-5. Five, five. And when we execute the value you add, it's a 6 untrended. And 
so that that's just where we see deals happening today. I'd say the only other space where we see deals happening that might be slightly lower metrics than that is if they have assumable financing that makes it accretive to the deal. This is a question for all of you. Uh, maybe just a quick reaction um, about the whole interest rate environment, what, what that means uh, for us in the near future. Yeah, it, this is a business that's a little sensitive to interest rates. So um, <laughs> I think, you know, if you just didn't change your NOI at all and you move interest rates as much as we've moved interest rates, you get fundamental revaluation. Um, and so we're seeing in, in you know, office, the problem with cap, cap rates and interest rates aren't directly correlated. So there's got to be your perspective on the risk and the asset class and then the capital demand for that asset class, which are going to either widen or compress the cap rate spread from the you know, base interest rate. So, um, but on, it, on its face, look, interest rates are way up uh, as a percentage. It's not, you know, if it goes up, uh, when I got in the business, sort of trophy high rise was an eight cap and stuff in the burbs was 10 or 11, right? Well, so the difference, it's three points. Big difference though, when you go from two to five versus, you know, going from, you're, you're more than doubling, right? Where you go from eight to 11, you know, you're talking about, you know, going up by a third or so. So the, the effects are, are just so magnified. The other thing that happens is we're seeing your, you know, the capital stack you use is typically about two thirds debt, one third equity or something like that. Well, the cost of your, if you have floating rate debt, that went up more than double so 65% or so of your cash flow, you know, which your assumed cash flow, your cost just doubled, which means your cash flows are going way down on the same income. Well, Jeff mentioned it, right? So with a cap rate move, as much as that we're seeing given interest rates, you cannot catch up with rent escalation. So he's increased his rents by 21%, but that cap rate movement is resulting in north of a 25% hit on your value. You just cannot catch up. And so it's pretty meaningful if it stays this way. Um, it's pretty impactful. Yeah, I would, I, one, of the, one of the stats that we, we've been tracking that we think, you know, with, with every down cycle, there provides opportunity. And one of the areas where we think there will be opportunity is if you look in the multifamily space in the Western US, uh, 2001, about 7% of the deals were capitalized with debt funds. From 2002 on, it's been 40% of the deals. So all floating rate, you know, all averaging 75% uh, leverage. And uh, some people purchased caps and some people didn't. And it, it's going to be interesting to see how the, those transactions react in this scenario. Um, we got a call on a deal in Denver or in, in, in San Diego, where somebody bought it two years ago for $36 million. They were 80% levered on a debt fund deal. Their lender was going to require them to purchase an interest rate cap. It was going to cost $2 million today. So they were seeing if they could quietly market the deal and get out of it. Our price today was $30 million, a 20% discount. So their equity's wiped out. David? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we have, we're, we have the benefit of, of fixed rate mortgages for the, for the most part. Uh, tremendous cash reserves. We we will be doing some very minor refinancing over the the short term, so that you know that will be challenging. But um, but we are you know we're going to weather the storm just fine. Um, but I agree. I think long term, if it if the rates stay where 
they're they're headed or where they really are now. I mean, that's going to be a game changer for sure. Yeah, um, Jeff, I'd like to stay with you just for one one additional um, you know question. Um, what about the impact on you know development? What what is what does this mean for um, for that part of? Yeah, you know, uh, we do a little development. We don't do a lot. And, and not um, just you, but uh, just yeah. in terms of others like you. you in know, peers that we've right. talked to, a lot of people are trying to extend their option payments, lessen their option payments, renegotiate the land prices. So I think it's just going to be elongate the development process. I don't think you're going to see a lot of new starts in the next 18 months. Okay. I, I am hearing, like, in talking to friends uh, that are pricing some deals now, they're starting to see a little give in construction costs where they're putting a lot of pressure on subs. Right. Let's call it three to five percent. How many lenders Hallelujah. here in this room are providing construction finance? Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Yeah. No no hands are going up. Um, um, got a spec office deal. Anybody want it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, times of disruption is also times of opportunity. Are, are there, is there any anecdotal evidence you guys are seeing of, you know, company formation, the kind of ideation in terms of, or is it just too early in terms of all of that happening right now um, in, the in, in the marketplace of any kind of, you know, velocity of, of, I mean, I of that? I mean, ChatGPT and AI, I mean, we talk about this all the time. My partner talks about it all the time. I think that's like a real game changer. I think Christina mentioned that too. I mean, we have these nuggets here. I mean, the amazing thing about the Bay Area is that it is the, the heartland of innovation because you have all these universities, you have great institutions. Bill mentioned about the infrastructure, it's hard to replicate. And when, you know, we saw this in the dot-com crisis, we saw the GFC, we're going through it right now, that you know you want to you want to um, write off the Bay Area, but the pr truth is is that there's so much innovation here, and the talent is here, and they build on it, and they build on it, and another cluster is formed. And so, you know, I'm excited about what might happen with AI, ChatGPT. I am not writing off the Bay Area by any stretch of the imagination, um, and but it's just going to take time. I mean, look, look, you just go back to the last cycle, you know, during. 2008, 9, 10, 11, that trough, there's a zillion companies formed, right? So <clears throat> it's not like there's not company formation going on. It's not like there's not ideas and growth. We just aren't seeing it land yet into the market, although there are, you know, nascent signs of, you know, requirements showing showing up. There's, there's going to be more contraction than there is expansion in the short term, but that doesn't mean there's not expansion. And, and I think... Um, we're going to see it across all sorts of different sectors. I mean, this is the hub of all innovation. We might not manufacture this stuff at scale, but we develop the ideas here, and that's not changing. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would say, to just first of all, I agree with everything you said. That is exactly the way I would put it. But I, one thing I think that's interesting too about AI is that um, from what I from what I hear, you know, the the big private equity and VC firms are spending 70 to 80% of their capital on AI right now. And AI requires an in-office concentration because there's so much collaboration and creativity that goes into their product. You can't just be working remotely on a Zoom call and come up with ideas. So they're really requiring, you know, these companies require an in-office environment. And the, the investors, I mean, the VC and, and private equity firms are requiring, as they place this capital, that the employees be in the office as a condition. That's what we're hearing. So that's positive. Um, and then we are hearing more just in terms of the market itself. We're definitely getting feedback from 
the tenant rep brokers in San Francisco that, you know, they're getting busier and busier. They're getting more and more referrals that are coming in. Some of the more, more high profile brokers that run with uh, some of these young tech tech companies and get inbound referrals are saying they're, they're just, they're getting more and more calls that the rate of that is, is increased dramatically over the last couple of months, really. So hopefully that's a green shoot. Yeah. Anything from the uh, CHIPS Act that might impact this you know, region, is that going to have an impact and on the, the IRA. manufacturing? And the IRA. Yeah. Um, th thoughts on that? I personally think the IRA and CHIPS Act is going to be beneficial. IRA, treasure, the Treasury regs are not out yet. So, you know, the money's not being released. Um, so I do think part of that, not all of it, because part of it goes to manufacturing, um, but I do think some of that is going to land here. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite, look, everybody's chasing that dough, to be honest, right? So, um, it's, you know, some of it's clearly going to land here. Um, I think the, the only concern I have is the Inflation Reduction Act is a spending bill. Mm -hmm. So it's not exactly going to reduce inflation, maybe. But um, I think it will bolster um and uh, onshoring and nearshoring yeah. is going uh, is inflationary. Uh, yeah. Onshoring, nearshoring is inflationary. But but I think you know, look, there's there's clearly you know, infrastructure is one of the real places when we think about the, the grid and energy and alternatives. Clearly, that's you know the kind of tech that's being developed around here. So we're we're definitely going to see spending here, without a doubt. Jeff, David, any thoughts? <laughs> Nothing to add to that. I I agree with. Um, so, Ani and Matt, in terms of um, you know valuations, I mean, I know we're still very early in terms of kind of where those adjustments are. Um, a couple of deals have happened in the city in the last month or so. Um, what are what is your outlook in terms of you know what happens now? Right? Um, are we um, where are we? <laughs> Excellent question. Uh, there's a couple of deals in the market right now that got pulled. One recently, one about a year and a half ago. I think those will be interesting indicators. They're both being sold. The Union Bank is selling a building. Wells is selling a building. They were both occupied by the banks. Um, different quality of buildings. So, you know, you, I don't think you can say it makes the market, but they're both vacant uh, or mostly vacant, and there'll be interesting data points on the market. I think the market is... You know, it was talking about, it's just too bifurcated. You told me there's a trophy asset. You want to sell on one market plaza right now? Right. You know, like the numbers on that, the, the pro, the pro, that might be high. The problem is there's not enough capital. Like who's going to go buy that right now? A billion, billion dollar deal, no debt. So, the, so we're seeing a moment in time. I think these assets will trade at what will be low numbers on a relative um, scale. And I think it's all about your optimism you can lease the space. How long and at what rate can you lease that space? And um, so, look, there's big readjustment coming. And when you have no debt, and the debt you can get costs 10 or 11% for office right now, if you could get it, uh, which is basically equity, that's going to have a monumental impact on, on values. And so we're, we're going to be in a trough right now. I just don't know how long the trough is or how deep uh, that, that trough is. And better assets, I think what you're going to see, there's going to be huge differentiation. A better asset will trade much higher because you're more optimistic about how fast you can lease it and at what rate you can lease it. So we're in a buying opportunity. That I can tell you. Yeah, I agree. I think there'll be, I think there'll be opportunity for sure in some classes. I think, 
I think looking at the buildings that have been on the market that didn't sell and, and using that as some sort of portent about what's going to happen, I think is is sort of silly, really, when, because these assets were just, you know, not not assets that I think would would be appealing in most most markets, really. So I don't know that it was really market specific. Um, and so I think that it'll be interesting to see, you know, when you have a real competitive um asset, a real quality asset, like what Matt's saying, what really defines the market. It's sort of like the leasing market. We don't really have a market. We have this bifurcated market that we talked about, but in the commodity sector, or in the creative tenant sector. We don't have a market yet. Um, and so we're just, we're happy to have that be redefined and figure out what that is. But right now, nobody really knows. Yeah. Uh, Billy and Christina talked about, um, you know, some of the things that are, you know, Driving both landlords and you and also tenants. I'm I'm curious from from your perspective, you know what, what is it that you're seeing? Are you seeing requests for amenities? Are you seeing um, sort of repricing? Are you seeing just you know, what what are kind of some of your anecdotes um, from, yes. from a, you know a landlord perspective? You know, yes for all right, but 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 what what is kind of you think today driving driving that? I mean, I, I think you got to think put yourself in the tenant's head. I mean, whatever deal you're making in any circumstance, buying something, leasing something, you got to put yourself in the other party's mindset to understand what's going on. And so the tenants are trying to figure out how to get their employees back to work and what's going to attract employees. So, and then there's a financial structure that sits on top of that. So how do you make, how's the building going to be relevant? How's the space in that building going to be relevant? Um, and whether that's amenitizing the space, whether that's building it out for them, I think it's ease. Like, I really do think it, it's going to be built mostly. Um, I think flexibility, flexible structures. Um, and as a landlord, I, you know, I think you're almost aligned with your tenant. If you want a three-year term, that might be better um, because I think the market will be better in three years. So you might find some alignment there. You just have you might have friction with the with the capital stack of the building, but I think um, you have to you have to be responsive to what what's coming at you from the other side. I don't think I don't think you can decide as a landlord how to make your building relevant. You have to listen and 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 be hyper responsive. All right. So, Ani, anyone? I thoughts? actually want to yeah. get Dave's uh, Dave's yeah. uh, perspective. Yeah. Okay, I'll share with you. What I yeah, no, I I am um, I I think amenities are huge. I think amenities have always been important. Um, and I think, you know, having a building that's well amenitized, um, I think is, is really important and it's become more vocally important, I think during this most recent phase. So we're definitely hearing that that's a big draw. I mean, if you're, if you've got, if you're trying to get your employees back to work, you want to have something to offer them other than a desk and a computer. Um, and so, you know, we, we have, luckily we have, you know, fitness centers in most of our buildings. If we don't have a fitness center or building, it's because we have a gym tenant that we don't want to be competing with. Um, we've got amenity centers where tenants can go and have conference, uh, conferences, obviously, or just a lounge kitchen area where we stock with, you know, everything from coffee to snacks, et cetera. Um, those things are important. If you have a roof deck, you know, trying to improve those things so there's some outdoor space. I think those things are just important in general, just, um, but they're just becoming more relevant. But then on the deal side, I think that is just more, again, I think, Tenant improvement allowances have generally been, I think, pretty steady. We're seeing some upward, um, we're seeing some reactionary uh, moves from from some of our peers, where the TI allowances are just are just shooting up, and that's to be expected. We've seen that in other downturns, um, and the free rent already moved its way up. 
but then the contract rates, you know, at least either were preserved mostly or they went up, right? So that wasn't so painful. Um, so th I think as, as far as what it takes to make a deal, the most interesting thing to me is this TI component because I keep thinking back to 2000 where you had a, if you had a vacant space, it was an as-is deal for 10 years minimum, very high rents, you know, it was always higher than the last deal, and then maybe potentially some warrants for your new company. And now we've had, through this hugely, you know, robust market that we had up until the pandemic, we had, what, 3.5% vacant market, 2.5% vacant market, I think, right before COVID. We're still doling out 120 bucks a foot. I know that, you know, we've gotten, you know, there's an infl inflationary component to it, and construction costs are high. But I think it's interesting how that hadn't changed. There was that, there was that adjustment in 2016, 17, where landlords got a little spooked and that's where the rent, that's where the TIs went up to preserve the rents, but then they kind of never came back down. Um, so as construction costs come down, I'd hope that there'd be some downward pressure on the TI allowance and some meeting of the minds there, because when you start running numbers on the rents that a lot of the, I think, commodity sector may see, you're not gonna be able to give 120 bucks a foot, let alone a $200 foot allowance. So I'm actually curious about the gyms because I, I always go walk into these gyms. I see no one in these beautiful gyms. So it's funny where, you know, people are producing these gyms and we have this conversation internally. For us, we're finding luck on turnkey. We're not doing the big TIs. We're just making it really easy for the tenants. We'll, uh, we'll do the space. We'll make it ready. It's moving ready. Um, not necessarily furnished, although sometimes we'll do furnished. And that's where we've had um, more success. Absolutely. Um, what are what are institutional investors uh, doing from a kind of allocation point of view? Um, what's happening in terms of you know um, how are they looking at this market um, also from from your perspective? <laughs> so. Um, so first, institutionally, from an institutional perspective, actually, institutional investors are very, uh, um, they're optimistic on commercial real estate. They're allocating more to the space than they've ever have. Um, their allocations will be increasing. Um, they, because it's a less volatile than than um, VC, for instance, although there was a period of time where they were like, why would I invest in commercial real estate? Look at these kind of returns, paper returns I'm getting in, in venture capital. So that, that actually, that learning is new and uh, quite interesting. They were scared last year. They are now like wanting to talk to people to understand exactly what's going on. And my money is on them putting allocations out the second half of this year and next year. They are viewing it as um, because there's going to be a resetting of value and they're talking to all of their managers. They know it's going to be a really interesting opportunity to invest. And so they're kind of two sitting on the sidelines and waiting to come in. Now, what their allocations will be, it, it, it will yet to be determined, but um, they are not afraid of commercial real estate and they are um, ready to enter the sector. I would say comma except office uh, at the moment. So, which is really making for an opportunity at the same time, everybody. I would say the institutions tend to move generally together. Uh, they're generally consultant advised in terms of their allocations. That's a, a big generalization, but you will 
see those allocations be pretty close across asset classes among managers. And that's shifted over the towards multifamily, towards industrial over the last you know three or four years because those have been real bright spots. Um, Today, the allocation toward uh, the biggest problem office faces really is liquidity. Um, the demand problem is real. The liquidity might be bigger uh, for valuations. So, you know, my expectation is you're going to see less allocation to office in the near term, which will make for a bigger buying opportunity because, you know, corrections, you, you make or lose money when you sell. Right? It's only when you sell, it's on paper. So your value may go down, you don't sell, you don't lose money. Uh, value on paper, it goes up, you don't capture it, and don't sell, you didn't make any money. I think at the moment, there's a lot of paper uh, that people are worried about on paper where they are, and I think that will cause a lot of reallocation out of, out of uh, office in the near term. But it's also gonna, and it's going to push, I think, office investing that does come in will go to super high-end office. In fact, you know, what you have is demand in office has been, I'm going to exaggerate, 80% of the demand is for 10% of the space right now in the you know, view space, which is why it's pushing the rents up. Um, I think you'll see the same thing with capital in the near term. It's going to want safety. Cap capital doesn't love risks in moments like this, although it'd be a good time to take risk. Uh, but it's going to want safety. And so that's going to be give me where it's proven. And that's going to be multifamily. That's going to be industrial. Those are taking a hit because of the capital markets and the pause in the economy. But those are much more perceived safety. So that's my guess is that's where those allocations yeah. look. And over the last couple of years, Jeff, I'm going to sort of ask you this question. A, a lot of money has gone into multifamily from the institutional side. There, there have been a lots of, you know, um, announcements of you know funds uh, funds being created. Um, what has that done to you know the market? What what is it going to do in the, in the next you know eight, eighteen months or so? Yeah, you know I think multifamily will still be uh, uh, a positive sector for allocation for the pension funds and, and other investors. Uh, you know when you look at multifamily broadly across the U.S., a lot of that capital was was focused more on the Sun Belt. To be honest with you, that's where the higher growth was. That's where the migration patterns were. And uh, you're starting to see that pendulum swing a little bit. The, the questions that I constantly get asked, California, Bay Area specific, is the regulation in the industry. How is that going to affect our investments? And so it, it's, it's communicating to them, talking about the risk factors, talking about the Submarkets that we will go in because it tends to be a, le a little less regulated. What's your answer about the, those risks? Yeah, I mean, when you looked at, you know, 2016, we had, what, 10 cities in the Bay Area that had ballot majors for rent control. Uh, the three that passed were in cities that had less than 60% owner-occupied uh, cities. And so the cities that had greater than 60% owner-occupied have more property rights as, as core issues for them. And so that's when we, where we tend to focus our investment in those first-rung suburbs that have those characteristics. Yep. Um, so um, as we close here, I do want to uh, leave some room for, for the audience to ask uh, some questions too. Um, but I will ask kind of a generic question about 2023. I know it's maybe too short of a term, but you know, things that maybe you guys are going to be looking at in terms of you know, what's, what's happening. What are, what, are, what are some kind of markers, David? Maybe we'll start with you. That will kind of you know give you a sense of what's what's happening in the market. Yeah. Well, I think I think we talked a little bit about where we see the demand shifting, and I think we'll be keeping our eyes on that for sure. I mean, we're looking at the you know what's happening in the economy. It's kind of interesting. I think the jobs reports really promising. 
Um, and then inflation, you know, is supposedly looks like we might be under control for now, but then what does that mean with the jobs report? So, I mean, I don't know if we're going to have like a, a recovery and then a, and then we're going to go back into a, a, you know, a tightening phase here. Um, but I think I'm relatively optimistic and uh, I, I'm very optimistic. It's sort of a problem, but, um, <laughs> but I do think that, I do think that it's going to be a slow, if, it, if I were to project, I would say that it'd be a slow recovery in the beginning half of the year, and I would think that it would actually become a pretty notable recovery by the end of the year. I think we're, we really will start to see things pick up. I mean, I've just been a big believer that we've we've got pent-up demand this whole time, sort of in disbelief that we're still talking about COVID and 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 the effects of it um, after three years. But um, I'm optimistic. I think. Yeah, Jeff. Uh, transaction volume has been slow. You know, I think we'll continue to see that the first six months of the year. I think you'll start to see owners. And, uh, and, and buyers come together a little bit and recognize that there has been a completely repricing of our assets and, and we'll want to transact. So I do think the second half of the year will be better than the first. Yeah, but, uh, but what will you look, look out for? A couple of markers that we look out for is, is you know, it's, it's hard to price risk when the volatility we have in interest rates. You know, a lot of our business, we correlate to the 10-year treasury. And, you know, in the last two weeks, we've had a 50 basis point swing. And so when you have a 90-day period where you have some smaller bandwidth and more predictability about where interest rates will be, I think people will be a lot more uh, comfortable pricing risk in today's market and, and moving forward on transactions. Yeah. Yeah. Matt? You know, I think we look, uh, obviously, at readily available data sets about employment, uh, apartment occupancies, all the stuff you can sort of regularly gather. I think we do a lot of anecdotal gathering from our networks with the venture community, with our networks in people who are running companies, really talking to CEOs and, and entrepreneurs in general about their thoughts, uh, because we're trying to be in front of things. Like when we buy a building, we're not buying a building for today. We're buying a building that it's probably going to take us 12 to 18 months to even get it to a deliverable state some business plan time, so we're three to four years out. So we're really trying to, to think further out on the continuum than, than right here. Uh, we, have a, we have a saying in, in TMG, which is stupid early, smart late. And that means don't overthink it and turn it into a math problem when it's really bad and really think about it. When things are really, really good, as we're seeing right now, it can drop really, really far. Um, and it, it, corrections are much bigger when you start up here than when you start down here. So we're trying to find places that we're comfortable in stepping in and taking uh, risk um, at a time where it's hard for, or hard to see, um, and we're trying to use those anecdotal sources to help us really look not only at the industries or um, the, the types of companies, but then sub-markets and asset-specific, because I don't think you're buying the market right now. You're buying your asset picking as opposed to just market buying. Ani? Um, I mean, very similar. So I also look at the BAA bonds because that's investment-grade debt, and that tells us a lot where somebody is going to invest in real estate. They're also, they could also pick it up in the public markets, and um, that matters. Um, uh, it's very much talking to companies and understanding whether or not what their strategy is about coming back to to their to the office or to their workspace, et cetera. Um, jobs report we care about a lot. Um, 
It is notable given all of the layoffs, and we still have 2.5% unemployment, um, which is pretty incredible. I actually agree with David that there will be pent-up demand. I'm, um, I don't know if I'm an optimist. I'm a realist. Um, <laughs> but I do think Safer. there will be. Yeah, I think there will be more activity. There'll definitely be. I, there's got to be more activity the second half of the year. Better than be. The, yeah, there better Safe be. Safe bet. Safe I bet. Mean, yeah. So, so as my final question, then I'll ask this: What would make this a fantastic year? Ani, I'll start with you. I mean, um, uh, wow, vacancy. Wiping away people coming back in. Yeah, that's not yeah realistic, okay, okay that's, realistically. Uh, yeah, right. um, I actually think realistically, if we start to see a steady uh, amount of tenants coming back in, people realizing that office is not uh, of yesteryear and there is real value. I think, let's, look, investors, they're all followers. They're following patterns. So if they have confidence that people are coming back in, that companies need to be in the space, that there's value of working from the office instead of working from home. I think that is really powerful in terms of that confidence. And I think it'd be helpful for the Fed to just stop and let things rest for heaven's sakes, seriously. Um, I think those two things would be a good year. Yeah. Matt? You know, I mean, I think markets are kind of psychology, right? So it's how the collective is feeling. So there's the the there's the side of me that's like I want to buy a bunch of stuff when people are feeling like the world is ending so I kind of like that to go on for a little while um and, and look there's 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 really challenging stuff so I don't want to sugarcoat it's challenging um but I, I think the psychology the collective psychology where people aren't beating up the Bay Area they realize that the inherent reasons we're all here and the value in our communities and and candidly I do think you know, as we were talking about earlier, getting getting more business responsive. I think the business community would, would make it a good year is the business community coming together. Um, it, there are some efforts in the city, there are efforts elsewhere to come together um, as a community as opposed to a group of, you know, it's been a lot, in my view, a lot of individual companies with individual interests um, and not coming together. And we have an incredibly potent um, force to help the communities we live in. And if we don't if we don't become, you know, pariahs and willing to step out a little bit, I think there's a lot of great that can come out of this, not just a lot of good. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to an investor the other day, and they, they were talking about the denominator effect on their on their portfolio and, and when they were going to do real estate allocations again. And he's like, he's like, if we're all being honest, he's like, we probably, you know, we're, in six months, I might be talking about a numerator problem because we finally marked down our real assets to what they really are worth. And so, you know, I'm a little like Matt. I don't want them to do that too soon yeah. because I think there's going to be some good opportunities in the cycle. But I think that will help capital flow again and the, the, the market to become more normalized. But I think in times where there's scarcity, there's opportunity. Yeah. David, final word. What will make this year great? Well, the one thing I would just say is that every time we have a downturn, we always, we always, everyone always has this propensity to do the math, and they look at the the annual net absorption, and they look at the supply, and they do the. If you just do the math, I mean, we've got 20, 20 years ahead of us before we're back to where we were, and it never happens that way. There's always some X factor that that presents itself, and everyone thinks about it. And I don't know that it's going to be AI, but maybe it's a combination of that, and some companies realizing 
well, we dumped all the space on the market. It's not really moving. And if you really look at a lot of that sublease space, there's a lot of it, but it's not all ready to go. It's not all that competitive to all the direct space. Some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. So maybe some of that just gets quickly reabsorbed because there is more of a back to the office rush. That would be a nice X factor. I'm not saying that it would all vanish. You know, that would be overly optimistic. But um, but I think seeing some some X factor this year would be would be wonderful. I just want to add, so we've been talking about real estate very specifically, but um, regulatory in our cities, safety and security of our streets, of our cities is so critical. 100%. Yeah. I totally agree. So that's like, if we get that done, that would be incredible. Um, and company, and, the, and these cities making it more business friendly as a second order. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.